You're listening, Boom, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Did you know that the most common middle name of Civil War officers from Georgia was Lewis? Did you know the Confederacy once raised an entire regiment of left-handed men? Did you know the idea for the steam-powered New York subway system was inspired by the drafting of all the horses from the street railways into military service in 1863? If you didn't, it's all right. None of those are true. But they are wild and interesting facts, if they were facts. Welcome to our April Fool and Tax Day show of 2007. With our guest today, Dr. Al Nofi, author of numerous books, including the Civil War Book of Lists, and the editor of Knapsack, the column of strange Civil War facts for North and South. Join us with Al Nofi in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this Friday afternoon in April 2007 from the Home Office in Greenville, North Carolina, as East Carolina University is closed today, it being the Easter holiday weekend. And so here early in April, we bring you, as uh, said in the introduction, a, a show with a, a bit of an April Fool's slant and that the facts you heard at the in, in the introductory segment were, of course, not facts at all, but perhaps representative of the kind of uh, interesting, uh, perhaps trivial, perhaps significant facts that can be collected about the war and that we'll be hearing more of today in just a few minutes. Today is also, uh, being early in April, the uh, uh, the tax season is upon us here in the United States, and a reminder is that donations to Civil War Talk Radio are not tax deductible, and if you attempt to do so, you will end up in the big house, but you're still welcome to make those donations. They do help the show. They do help us, help me get books to read uh, that then lead to authors coming on the show. And while your donation is not tax deductible, if you can uh, send $50 or more, I will be happy to send you a copy of my book, All for the Regiment, 
the Army of the Ohio, 1861 to 1862, autographed to whomever you like. Well, in terms of books, that's one book. Our, our guest today, Dr. Albert A. Nofi, has written numerous books, and uh, I, I'm interested to talk to him about some of some of them, particularly the Civil War ones. Uh, Al, are you there? I'm here. Great. Glad you could join us today. Um, I first saw your name, must be 30 years ago now, uh, on the pages of Strategy and Tactics magazine. Yes, the good old days. Uh, those were were the good old days. Uh, <clears throat> for for listeners who aren't that old uh, or didn't waste their youths uh, playing uh, paper war games, recreating battles of the past, uh, strategy and well, well, Al, you tell us what strategy and tactics was. Well, strategy and tactics was either a history magazine with a war game in it, or a war game magazine with a lot of history articles. I suppose you could put it either way. Uh, every issue had a game. For example. Uh, uh, Jackson in the Valley, I think, and uh, Gettysburg, of course, and American Civil War, along with a lot of other, you know, other wars, uh, Roman, medieval, early modern, modern, future, even science fiction, and even an occasional sports game. And then the magazine had uh, usually one major article related to the game, uh, then several other historical articles, uh, taking an historical and analytic stand slant on the, the events rather than a uh, uh, straight narrative treatment. And, and you got you helped that magazine get started uh, back in the 60s, is that right? Um, well, actually it had been started by a, uh, a war gamer who was stationed in Japan at the time, who was struggling along for a few years. Then Jim Dunnigan, uh, I was associated with Jim Dunnigan, he was designing war games for Avalon Hill. And uh, and then we sort of set up our own little company to design war games, and we were selling them through the pages of Strategy and Tactics when the fellow in Japan basically said, that the magazine is going bust. And so the problem was, of course, uh, how, to, how to keep selling games. So Jim borrowed 100 bucks from me and bought the magazine. And I discovered, uh, long story, I was, I was serving as a cook on a cruise yacht that summer. I came back after having lent him the money to discover that I was... Um, uh, research editor for the magazine, and uh, Jim um, brilliantly revamped the magazine, making the point that all all wargamers were interested in history, whereas all people interested in history weren't necessarily interested in wargaming. So he revamped the magazine from a, a heavy wargaming, a little bit of a history slant, to a strong history slant with a wargame, historically based wargame in it. And uh, it's still chugging along under different ownership. Uh, they're up to issue 200 and some odd issues at this point, uh, pushing 300. So it's doing pretty well. Uh, you wrote a number of articles for the magazine. Is that right? Yes, uh, quite a number, actually. <laughs> so at that point, you were, you said temporarily you were cooking on a, a cruise ship. That was my summer job, yeah, for several years. Uh, so, I was actually a high school teacher in New York City. Okay. I taught in New York for about 30 years primarily in alternative programs. Um, so, uh, you know, I was able to do a lot of unusual things, like do some wargaming. And, did, um, did you design any of the games? Uh, yes, I designed about um, a dozen games, several of which uh, were in a, a S&T. Uh, um, 
uh, Centur- Centurion was one of them, and Renaissance of Infantry uh, are, uh, were two of the early ones, of course, non-Civil War titles. And then later I also des- designed a number of games for other uh, venues and publishers, including a Vicksburg campaign game, which is long, long, long out of print. Yeah. So, so you got involved. So you were interested in history from from the start, I gather. Yes, I was interested in history. My 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 background. My, my father actually was a, was an, he didn't have much of an education, but he was an avid reader and really enjoyed history, uh, which probably is uh, it's reasonable for someone who spent the great portion of his youth living on the corner of the Appian Way uh, uh. before the family moved back to the U.S. So you had you, you had the history bug. Uh, did you study history in school? Yes, I've got a doctorate in, in uh, military history, actually. And what uh, is that in, in civil? Well, tell us about your dissertation. Was that civil war? Well, it was civil war, but it wasn't the U.S. Civil War. <laughs> um, Which one? I have the uh, my dissertation has the sonorous title of uh, General Officer Loyalties in the Spanish Civil War. And it's a, a group biography and profile of the generals who were on active duty when the Spanish Civil War broke out, and what, hap- what, what, what happened to them and why. So you're looking at what what caused them to choose one side or the other. Uh, both, sides, both sides. All the officers who were on active duty the day the war began, uh, those who were national became nationalists, those who became um, loyalists. And those who ended up getting shot, uh, sometimes, you know, by both sides, one might say. Did, did uh, we're a little far afield of our own American Civil War, but I'm curious about this. Did did you find anything that prompted the, in, in people's background that made them choose one side or the other in that conflict? Um, the only common link, generally, was that. Um, uh, officers who, who stayed loyal to the Republic were more likely to be members of leftist organizations. But in fact, there were leftists who joined the nationalists as well. In fact, some of them, uh, a couple of the most prominent nationalist generals uh, had been considered uh, wacko leftist revolutionaries uh, prior to the Civil War. Now, so sometimes not... people are geographically loyal, hmm. which... Uh, uh, you know, every, every civil war is unique, and um, in the case of the Spanish Civil War, uh, there are complex um, uh, ethnic, geographic tensions in Spain. There are also political tensions, but um, unlike the U.S. Civil War, Spain, you know, if, if you are a general and you're desperately trying not to join the revolution or not to support the revolution, you know, or, or to, not to stay loyal because you don't, uh, you don't want to, you know, get involved. And somebody wanders into your office uh, with a gun and says, uh, "You're with us, right, General?" Well, most of us would probably say yes. Wouldn't be much choice. Yeah. Um, now, in the American Civil War, that rarely happened. Um, uh, there were a couple of occasions, you know, when some strange things happened, but it was quite unusual. I guess Twiggs was the only guy who basically uh, threw, threw in with the Confederacy and then basically ordered his troops to surrender. He, he quite literally, was the only guy who behaved in a an extremely pusillanimous manner. That's an interesting point. I, I mean, there are some generals, certainly some northerners who go south and vice versa, yeah. 
but but Twiggs, he was in Texas at the, the outbreak of the war, is the only one who actually turns over his government property and troops to the other side. In fact, that's one, you know, I, I'm often amused by counterfactuals because sometimes they really get carried away, you know. They'll, they'll talk about something that happens in 1863 and postulate what might happen, you know, what, what might be the consequences in, in 1943, mm-hmm. which is a little silly. But um, one of the more interesting counterfactuals that would, could set off endless debate in terms of how it would affect the war immediately, uh, you know, remember Lee was, Lee had just been appointed uh, uh, commander of the, uh, I was at the 2nd Cavalry, mm-hmm. now the 5th, uh, uh, but he was not in Texas at the time. Now, suppose Lee had been in Texas, and remember, the initial orders were to evacuate the posts, and then Twiggs turned, you know, said, told everybody to surrender. Well, would Lee have obeyed that order, since it was an unlawful order? This would be prior, of course, to his resignation from the service. And that could make some, for some interesting uh, uh, consequences. If Lee refuses to obey the order and, in effect, uh, you know, perhaps engages Texas state troops, uh, you have a really serious counterfactual there. And that now there's much less chance of him going to the Confederate side if he's actually started fighting. Yes. And, of course, there were several Confederates that did that. That was surprisingly, you know, performed in, in a surprisingly loyal fashion. Up, quite literally, to the minute they were, um, they they submitted their resignations. Uh, well, I, I was just looking through some uh, back issues of North and South, where you edit the the knapsack column that gives us some of these tidbits. And, and recall, you mentioned uh, General Magruder as an example of that. Yeah, yes, he's a good example. He. Um, he um, he was quite literally working on a fortification, as I recall, and basically said, uh, you know, uh, come on, guys, and if the rebels come tonight, um, we'll, 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 we'll shoot the hell out of them. And but if they come tomorrow, I'll probably be with them. So, <laughs> until the minute like he resigned, he was going to be a loyal soldier. Yeah, and even um, uh, there's an interesting bit uh, told about uh, Longstreet. Uh, uh, as him and some of the other officers uh, who were stationed way out west are making their way, having submitted their resignations, are making their way east, uh, he, said, he, he recounts that, that they were approached by a, a sergeant, a man of southern origins, which uh, curiously is unusual, was unusual in the, pre, in the, uh, in the antebellum army uh, uh, since uh, most of the enlisted men seem to have been northerners, although about a third of the officers were southerners. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was approached by this uh, uh, southern sergeant and asked, uh, you know, said, hey, I want to, I want to, you know, me and some of the other guys, you know, want to want to join the South as well. And uh, and Longstreet gives him a long lecture on, on military um, law and custom and basically says, you know, as an officer, I hold, um, you know, I I hold a commission which is granted to me, and I may resign. But as an enlisted man, you have signed a contract and may not resign. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, kind of an interesting parsing of the legal um, uh, issues involved at the time. So there were a lot of these. And the very fact that guys like Longstreet and whatnot stationed in the West would, uh, on resignation, entrusted their families to their unionist buddies. Who, who very loyal, you know, loyally uh, saw that the families were taken care of and shipped, shipped uh, 
East, uh, you know, uh, on the on the next, uh, well, you know, next ship around the horn or the next wagon train going west, going east. Uh, so there was a lot of interesting legal parsing going on at the time. Very very wonderful stories. Yeah, that, that is. Yeah, you wrote a book about Longstreet. Uh, Actually, I edited. Uh, edited a book. It was a collection of papers, I, as I recall. Yeah, it was a collection. We had a, there was a conference held at New York Military Affairs Symposium, which, uh, free plug here, um, uh, has been holding uh, free lectures in New York uh, since the, uh, the early 80s. Uh, pretty much every Friday there's a lecture. Where, where, where does that meet, just for it if anyone's in New York? It the University of New York Graduate Center, which is diagonally across the street from the Empire State Building. Hmm. Their website is uh, uh, nymas.org, and you'll see plenty of goodies. But we had a conference with the uh, North Carolina chapter of the Sons of Confederate Veterans and the Longstreet Society. Uh, I mean, here's poor Longstreet, who really got a, uh, a going over from his uh, uh, some some of his com- comrade erstwhile comrades, and um, it's it's quite interesting. Uh, Longstreet was was you know I mean, Lee considered him his most capable subordinate, not Jackson. You, you can see that even before uh, uh, Jackson's death, uh, and uh, that's probably one reason why Longstreet felt that he had a certain amount of freedom to argue with Lee. Uh, and the the scene at Appomattox when when, uh, when Lee bade farewell to his staff, he, you know, a tremendously emotional moment. And he's shaking hands with each man. The, you know, this is Lee, the Stoic, and he comes to Longstreet, and uh, I mean, he breaks down crying, and he's hugging Longstreet, and Longstreet is crying. I mean, two grown men, right? You know, uh, and he calls him once again for the third time. He calls him my old war horse and whatnot. But after the war, uh, and it's a curious evolution. Longstreet decides that the best way to deal with Reconstruction is to cooperate with it. In effect, uh, to, to quote uh, Giuseppe de Lampedusa, uh, the, the, uh, the best way for, for things to stay the same is for them to change. In, in a, you know, if we cooperate with Reconstruction, yes, the blacks will have the vote and have some rights, but we will be back in charge very shortly. You know, because we've got the money and and you know, and we will have the vote, uh, despite the fact that black voters uh, are there. They're a minority of the voters, and uh, and this was, you know, I mean, the stauncher among his uh, the, the stauncher secessionists among his uh, erstwhile comrades couldn't get this, and of course he had also criticized Lee, which was a a no no. So you got guys like uh, uh, Jubal Early. And Pendleton, and neither of whom was a, was particularly uh, distinguished among the leaders of the Confederacy, who, who began to build up their military reputations by dumping on, by, by passing off as the defenders of Lee. And, and Lee said some really rude things about Pendleton. Uh, never gave him a chance to do anything because he was incompetent, and uh, re- actually relieved early. Um, and he never relieved anybody. And, you know, he would always arrange for them to be transferred uh, to a higher post. Yeah. Now, Pendleton was the the artillery chief, as I yes. recall. Yes, but uh, but but not really. Didn't have any power. Didn't have any power. Yeah, uh, you know, and and in fact, uh, the few occasions when you see him doing anything, he screws it up. Yes. Um, uh, Lee. Well, Lee didn't have that ruthless streak 
that um, in terms of, of his subordinates and probably kept some people on too long. I think there, there's a story of him seeing Pickett near the end of the war and saying, is that man still with the Army? Yeah. Um, but I do have a ruthless streak, and I'm going to use it to take a short break right now okay. as the music comes up. So we'll just step back for a moment, and we'll return in a minute with Dr. Albert A. Nofi. Just call me Al Nofi. And with our, our friend Al, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. North and South Magazine, read by many Civil War aficionados, includes an entertaining column each issue called Knapsack with tidbits and curious facts about the war. We'll talk with the editor of Knapsack, Al Nofi, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small Business Success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. Smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Al Nofi, editor of the Knapsack column for North and South Magazine, author of numerous books on Civil War and other aspects of military history. In our first segment, we were talking uh, just a few moments ago about the career of James Longstreet. Uh, Al edited a volume of essays on Longstreet and discussing the, the remarkable post-war career in which this man who was Lee's old war horse, his, his right arm, his, his most uh, trusted subordinate uh, after Jackson or even perhaps beyond Jackson. Uh, and yet after the war, Longstreet falls into disfavor with his former comrades, partly because he joins the Republican Party and supports Reconstruction, partly because he criticizes Lee, dares to say anything bad about him. And uh, by the 1990s, when this conference was held in New York City, there was still, I think at that time, no monument to Longstreet at Gettysburg. Al, is that correct? Yes. Uh, did, did the conference have anything to do with the eventual construction of a monument? Yes, it was part of the whole push, and we... Um in fact, uh, half of the proceeds from the book went to uh, support the monument. And I was present that day uh, when the monument was unveiled. Um, uh, 
it was a um, a long delayed honor for the uh, for the man, uh, and it's kind of interesting. You can see the roots of his rehabilitation even in uh, um, even in Freeman. You know, Fre- Freeman ne- never quite ne- never quite gets over his hero worship of Lee. No. Um, to, to the point where he, he, he completely missed Lee's impish sense of humor. Uh, there's, a, there's a story about uh, um, Lee wrote a letter in which he, he, he talked about a so-called adventure that he had in uh, visiting an old lighthouse. And, uh, and, he, and he talked about him and somebody else visiting the old lighthouse and, and having to kill the, uh, 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 the caretaker. Hmm. And, and Freeman didn't realize Lee was telling a joke. <laughs> Lee, Lee and his friend visiting the place found a snake when they walked in it, so they beat it to death. Ah. You know. And then, of course, Lee had this very, very strange relationship with young women. Very naughty. He would sometimes get into very naughty conversations, or even letters, with young women. Um, although, personally, of course, he seems never to have strayed, so to speak. And Freeman missed that entirely, too. Um, uh, But one of the things that's interesting about Freeman is that uh, late in his life, he made a comment about Longstreet and said that Longstreet had perhaps not received the honor due him from some of his comrades. And that can be sort of seen as an early glimmer of rehabilitation of Longstreet, although several other authors had begun to see that and uh, I mean, the traditional reputa- uh, reputation is that Longstreet was always late, never quite got his troops on, you know, there on time. Well, several people have, you know, walked around the battlefield with stopwatches, and, hey, he wasn't late, you know, he was about as quick as you could be, he was about as quick as Jackson in a lot of cases. And, uh, and then, of course, there's deli- del- deliberate falsification, uh, in some cases, of uh, evidence by guys like... Uh, uh, Early, uh, the famous dawn attack on uh, on July second at Gettysburg is, is is a complete fabrication. There is not a shred of evidence that predates the death of Lee, testimonial or something. You know that can be shown that Lee wanted a dawn attack, and in fact, a dawn attack would have been physically impossible since uh, at dawn the last of the troops. We're just arriving on the battlefield after a, a considerable overnight trek and needed rest. Yet this became part of the anti-Longstreet uh, uh, cabal, I guess you would say, uh, part of their mythos and part of the lost cause myth. Bl- blame it all on Longstreet, you know, uh, because Lee couldn't possibly make mistakes, which unfortunately is not true. He did make a number of mistakes. Well, that makes a convenient target, then, to put it on Longstreet. Now, you wrote another book on the, the campaign at Gettysburg, since we're talking about that and yes. Longstreet's attack on July 2nd. Yeah, well, and, what I tried to do there yes, was... go ahead. Uh, Gettysburg, of course, was the biggest battle of the war. And uh, uh, traditionally regarded as the turning point, although I would say that a better term would be that the first two or three weeks of of um, 
the last couple of weeks of June and the first couple of weeks of uh, July of 60, uh, 63 were the turning point because you have, uh, in, in addition to Gettysburg, of course, you have uh, Vicksburg, and then you have Tullahoma, which is a very overlooked operation. Tullahoma is one of the most brilliant operations in the Civil War. Rosecrans, uh, by, by sheer maneuver and very little fighting, I think the total casualties in the two-week operation are only five or six hundred. But he manages to literally throw the Confederates out of Tennessee. Uh, that's a brilliant operation. So, so anyway... It, it, look, look, I want to say a word there because I'm a big, big fan of the Tullahoma campaign. He, he drives them back from, essentially, from Murfreesboro down to Chattanooga and then yeah. out of Chattanooga without any major fighting. Yeah. And I, I think he wrote a letter complaining that he didn't get any credit because his success, he said, was not written in letters of blood. It, well, he was right, of course. And, and, and yes, other than the people who listen to this show, I would guess most Americans have never heard of the Tullahoma campaign. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and oddly, um, uh, Rosecrans is a general of the old school. Uh, this this is the kind of operation that, that McClellan would have loved to do, you know. Yes. You could do it in the West. You can't do these kinds of things very well in the East. It's a little more difficult because the, 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 the theater is a little tight around the shoulders, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that in uh, in 64, I mean, basically what Grant is trying to do is get around Lee, you know. Unfortunately, there just isn't enough room to uh, do bait and switches and, and, uh, and sweeping maneuvers and, and accomplish that. Uh, but anyway, the Gettysburg Campaign book, uh, we always look at the battle. Yet the campaign lasts approximately a month, but more than a month, actually. Uh, if you think about from the time the armies leave the line of the uh, uh, the Rappahannock to the time they get back to it, and there's enormous op- operations all over the damn place, and uh, extraordinary mobilization of northern resources. Uh, you've got um, what is it? Thirteen thousand New York State militia are organized and in, in, sent down to uh, to help defend the Susquehanna. And they're skirmishing along the Susquehanna. Uh, you've got operations down in Virginia, you know, because the uh, uh, Union forces at uh, Norfolk and Suffolk uh, are, are conducting uh, operations against Confederate lines there to pin troops down. Now, now, how deliberate some of this was, well, it's hard to tell. Uh, you know, I mean, Meade, Meade certainly uh, didn't have time to, to quote to coordinate this widespread operation, but clearly you know, Halleck was doing something. and So tried to put the battle as the, the focal point of this very sweeping operation. And um, uh, that actually was part of a series of books that, that treated great battles within the framework of the, the overall campaign. I did one on Waterloo, too. And it's curious the reception that the books received. Um, you know, you have these, um, what we used to call order of battle freaks, the guys who want to make sure that they know exactly how many people, you know, down to the last, you know, mess kit repair platoon were in the battle. Right. You know, uh, well, aside from the fact that this is probably impossible to determine, mm-hmm. because, you know, 
All right, so we take the muster at nine at, at, at six a.m. this morning, and we go into action at eleven. Well, that doesn't mean that the guy, the number of guys listed at six, are the same as the number of guys that went into action at eleven. That's right. Uh, but you get people who are, you know, desperate for this. So, in doing these books for the Order of Battle, one of the things I did, you know, you got, you got to. One of the things that I find very interesting is people don't read introductory material. So, for example, if I have an appendix in a book with an order of battle, and I have four or five paragraphs at the beginning of that order of battle explaining it, nobody reads it. They just want to see the regiments and the brigade. Yeah, and then they see, my God, it's 373 guys listed for the 19th Oshkosh. When it was actually 374, they go bananas, you know, <laughs> not having read it. Uh, does it really matter if there were 373 or 374? And the answer is no. Um, but there are people who get excited about this. And uh, so the reception to the series, because it tried to place the information within the general context and therefore used essentially rounded numbers uh, and talked about some of the peripheral operations that were going on at the same time. Uh, in the Gettysburg campaign, we got, uh, there's a number of modules that cover Vicksburg, uh, if I recall, I haven't looked at the book in years, Vicksburg, Tullahoma, and the um, operations in eastern Virginia. Mm-hmm. Most people never even thought of that in the context of the of the battle, this, this major battle in the middle of the country. Well, I think that that's a great approach because uh, one thing we forget is we don't know where the focal point of the campaign, or rather we do know where the focal point of the campaign is in retrospect, but the participants don't know that. Right. And it's not clear to them at all where the major fighting is going to be or where things are going to end up. Um, yeah, that, that's one of the reasons wargaming is so interesting. Uh, war, wargaming doesn't prove anything. Let's get that down very quickly because mm-hmm. some people think it does. But it can demonstrate options and raise questions. Um, and... Um, you know, if if we're if we have the the Eastern Theater, and I'm I'm going to play Lee, and I'm commanding all of the Confederate resources in um, in Northern Virginia, um, and probably being because it's a war game, being given some resources that actually aren't on my, under my command, like the guys down on the uh, on the coast. Um, I have the option of not doing what Lee actually did. And then you can begin to think, well, you know, suppose he'd done this, or suppose he'd done that. Um, suppose he'd uh, pulled back after the first morning's fighting. What would have happened? Uh, you know, these are options that you could begin to explain. They don't prove that the outcome that you end up with actually, you know, would have, would have happened. But it gives you some, some questions that can be uh, uh, discussed. I would agree with that. I think they reintroduce the idea of contingency, of unpredictability, that things are not destined to happen the way they do. And when you move the counters around and have something different happen, you can at least begin to discuss why that option and not the other one. Yeah, you know, um, there's a couple of war games that have done pretty well in that regard. There's a, uh, There was a system that uh, was developed at Strategy and Tactics uh, and for um, for like the mid-19th century strategic level 
or operational level gains. Mm-hmm. And it was used for um, uh, a couple of Civil War games and, uh, and an eight, uh, a Franco-Prussian War game. Basically, your counters were core and, and some smaller units, but you had a lot of dummies. Uh, because you know you, you can't build. It's it's not until World War One that you can get a continuous front. So that means that there are going to be plenty of space. And if I can send the cavalry brigade wandering off into your, your rear, you know, or threatening your rear, mm-hmm. um, well, you know, is there anybody around who's going to be counting those guys and? You know, so now I've got you know now the 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 opposite commander has to think about well what can we do with these you know what's there is this the main thrust? That has happened many times. Um, uh, in the Pacific War, we would frequently uh, attack two or three places, sometimes with very light one or two very light forces, you know, a couple of islands or something, feints and stuff, um, or or land um, um, was it. Um, Chassoux in the, in the Bismarck, is it, or the Upper Solomons, mm-hmm. landed a Marine uh, battalion there, and, and for a week they run around, you know, blowing things up. Meanwhile, in Washington, they're announcing that a division has landed on the island. But the, while the Japanese side. are focused on this, we land at Empress Augusta Bay on, um, and, uh, on New Britain. And that's, that's the real landing. Now that that uh, the game you mentioned on the, the Civil War, I actually obtained a copy of it uh, not long ago through through eBay, long out of print. I think it's called Lee Moves North. Yes, I think that is it. Yes. And uh, it is a brilliant game. It's thirty years old, thirty five years old now, but with just a few counters. The the most important fact is most of them are upside down, so you don't know which counters are the enemy's army and which ones are are, are fake or. Are, are, Deceptions yeah. represent a cavalry patrol instead of the the Third Corps, and it does to play a game or even contemplate these counters on a map gives you a much different idea because now you you get some sense of the uncertainty that these generals operated under. They have no idea, or, or a very unclear idea, what's on the other side of the hill. Yes, in yeah. fact, um, there's a recent book um, on uh, uh, I think. Sherman moves north, or... or nope. I'm losing the sound of your voice a little bit. There's a recent book, and oh, yeah. I cannot recall the name, but uh, I think it's uh, it's by a general. General Scales, in fact, I think. Hold on a second. I, I can look it up here. You're checking the library as we go. This is... uh, yeah, Sherman invades, jo- Sherman invades Georgia by General Scales. And uh, uh, I know he was a he was a special op, special warfare officer. And what he did was he uh, he analyzes the campaign um, using you know standard military staff procedures, but tries to only use inputs that would have been available to Sherman and and Johnston hmm. at the time of the campaign. Now that makes things tough. Uh, you know, we look back and we know all the information. So we know shoulda, coulda, woulda, you know. Uh, but that doesn't prove anything. That these guys had some serious problems. They didn't know what was happening. And just, just to tie 
tie the circle closed here, we were talking about Douglas Southall Freeman earlier, the great biographer of Robert E. Lee, yes. and he uses that same approach in the, in the Lee biography where he tells you, the reader, the information that Lee had at any given moment, but very little more if he can avoid it. So you do get some sense as you're reading that of why Lee is reaching the decisions he's making. Now, we, of course, know things. If you've read anything about the Civil War, we know the Army of the Potomac is almost at Gettysburg on July 1st. Yes. And he doesn't know that. But often for the more obscure battles, it's it's interesting to read them from, from a Lee point of view. Now, I, I wanted to ask you about another uh, uh, publication of yours, uh, the, uh, the, the Knapsack column, and also about the Civil War Book of Lists. But I think we're coming to time to take another break. Okay. So we'll do that. We'll come back in just a minute and talk more with our guest, Al Nofi, here on Civil War Talk Radio. can you go to find out the 10 ugliest generals of the Civil War? We'll tell you when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Al Nofi, editor of the Knapsack column for Civil for North and South magazine, Civil War magazine, and also the author and editor of numerous other books, including the Civil War Book of Lists which we alluded to in the introduction for this segment. Uh, it's a book that came out some years ago uh, related to a similar volume called The Civil War Treasury, filled with bits and pieces. The Civil War Book of Lists, among other things, will tell you, in its uh, contributors' opinions at least, who were the ten ugliest generals of the Civil War, or the ten strangest hair uh, treatments that people wore, as well as lists of things like casualties, uh, battles, uh, more more standard data. Um, Al, how did you come up with the idea for uh, uh, being part of the Civil War Book of Lists? Um, actually, it was uh, it was conceived by uh, by Bob Pigeon, who at that time was the um, the editor and publisher of uh, Combined Combined Publishing, a small publisher in Pennsylvania. He's now a uh, an editor with the Capo Press, uh, and um, came up with that idea, and we ran with it. We just, in fact, a lot, a lot of stuff never got in because it was, it was too much, you know. Um, you know, like uh, the mustache stuff, the, the guys with the wildest hair treatments, you know. Uh, 
the um, uh, generals noted as womanizers didn't get in. Uh, lists of uh, of generals who were boozers and generals who were teetotalers didn't get in. You know, I mean, just, they were just after a while you could get hundreds of these lists together. Uh, I was just glancing through this recently, and and I can see this is just the sort of thing to bring to the the next Civil War roundtable meeting and, and get in some uh, spirited discussions with people. For example, you you have a list of the ten uh, the ten best brigades uh, in the Union armies during the war. Yeah. And I look at that and I go, all right, uh, the first six of them are all from the Army of the Potomac, and eight out of the ten are all from the Eastern Theater. And as an old Western guy myself, I say, where's Wilder's Lightning Brigade? Where's the Iron Brigade of the West? Um, this must be compiled by some New Yorkers. Uh, um, well, I guess it is, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the kind of thing you can, I mean, there is no right or wrong. Hey, when you're away from New York, you're just camping out, you know. <laughs> Uh, you're you're either there or you're you're somewhere else, I guess. Yes. Um, well, it was a, it's a very entertaining book for just that reason that you can read lists like that and come back with your own arguments. And in fact, I think I think I think we say that in the intro somewhere that you know, hey, this is this is our you know this is our list. <laughs> you want to make your own list? Go ahead. And needless to say, I must not have read the introduduction because no one reads the introduction. No one reads the introduction. <laughs> Um, now, similarly, you do this this column for North and South, where you you come up. Still there? Still here? Yes, I lost you for a second for some reason. Now, I'm calling. I'm I'm doing the show today from the home office, which means my teenage daughter's friends are calling every five minutes, and all these clicks are appearing on the line, huh. <laughs> uh, trying to get hold of her while I monopolize the phone line. Um, normally, I'm in my office, and that doesn't happen. Now, the this north and south column. Where do you do you go out looking for these tidbits for for each column, or are these things you've come across over the years and you just have a big notebook full of them? How does that work? Um, a little both. Um, uh, you know, I I read a good deal in Civil War and in other subjects, and uh, you know, over the years the files kind of get get bulgy, uh, and then sometimes something happens that how shall I say? Uh, uh, Something serendipitous happens, and uh, I'll be doing one thing, and some Civil War connection will come up, which is why occasionally you'll notice uh, there'll be a piece in Knapsack that isn't about the Civil War, but ends with a Civil War connection. Um, like, um, you know Nathan Bedford Forrest was killed in an airplane crash? No. Yes, he was, in 1943. Ah, now there's, there's a trick here. Go ahead with it. Well, it's the General's grandson. Uh-huh. Or, or grand nephew, I forget which. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the one of the li- one of the one of the lists that I'm currently working on that'll appear someday is noted Second World War commanders who are the descendants of Civil War commanders. Interesting. Yes, MacArthur leaps to mind. Yes, MacArthur. Uh, Montgomery makes the uh, the Union Quartermaster General. Okay. The general who commanded in the Balkans. In the '90s, Montgomery Meigs really is actually a is actually not a descendant. Uh, it's a, uh, if I remember correctly, or it's his daughter. It's his daughter's grandson, or something, or great grandson, mm-hmm. who adopted the family name. You know, because Montgomery right. Meigs himself had had um, his son had no children, no uh, no children. But you know, there's all these wonderful little trivial connections that happen, and. Uh, um, uh, like I think, I think it just recently ran the piece on um, uh, John Singer Sargent 
and the uh, and the famous painting of uh, uh, oh, what's the woman's name? Um, the very sexy painting that made Sargent's reputation in the 1880s. It, it's the one where she, she has a, a gown with a strap. Yeah, yeah. It's actually painted as a strapless gown, and yes. he got in trouble for that. Yeah. But um, I was just reading, literally reading a review of a book about, you know, read book reviews, you know, about this woman. Mm-hmm. And it said she, you know, because she's an interesting character herself, and it said that she was the, the daughter of a... Louisiana colonel in the Civil War. They said, whoa, a Civil War connection. And I started looking for it, and, and that's where that piece came from. Uh, you know, it's just sort of serendipitous um, uh, connection. Uh, these things come up in odd ways. I'm working on a little piece. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm currently working on a book about the military service of the presidents, uh, which, which can be quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, you know, I'm... Researching this and that, and come across, uh, I'm up to Woodrow Wilson. Well, you know, Woodrow Wilson had no military service. Well, we know that. But um, I'm rummaging through to see, you know, any back, any, anything in the family background that might be of interest. You know, I know his father had had served as a volunteer uh, chaplain in the Confederate Army, and so on. And I come across this reference that two of his uh, his uncles were generals in the Union Army. So of course I say, wait a minute, that ain't right. And I run to my trusty Ezra Warner, and they ain't in there. So I got I got to try and figure out how, where this story came from, and so I started doing a little research, and I discovered um, why that story arose, and it's going to end up in the uh, in the in the knapsack in a, in, in a, you know maybe about a year from now. Hmm. Um, it's just you know family recount families sitting around the, the the table telling the stories of the good old days when. Uncle So and So was a commissary, assistant commissary general in the army, and of course the next generation tells the story, and the the, the assistant drops out, and the commissary drops out, and So and So was a general in the Civil War. You see, I mean, hundreds of people all across the country are immensely proud of their Civil War ancestor, who was a general, when in fact he was an assistant adjutant general, or or a uh, assistant commissary general, and so on. You know, families get very upset when they discover the uh, the truth, which is unfortunate. No, it's, it's much more more fun to have the exaggerated story. Yeah. But there are a lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of fun true stories in these. Uh, oh, wonderful! Pieces. So, what, one of the interest, one of the things I've occasionally been accused of of uh, doing trivia. And I, I was going to ask you about that, so go ahead. Uh, yeah. Now, the point is this. There's a difference between trivia and obscure information. And most people don't know the difference. You know, the fact that there are, you know, 1,037 men in a, in a Union regiment is obscure information. But, if, you know, the fact that, well, the, the, the joke you said earlier, you know, that 1,037 men, 1,037 men in this regiment all named Lewis. Aha! Yeah. Now that's trivia. That would be trivia. It's obscure information, or perhaps not so obscure information, that is amusing, or provides insight, or is you know an interesting commentary on something. You know, uh, like uh, helps to explain something. Well, I thought one of the interesting lists in your book, uh, in the book of lists, was of of ten facts about the Civil War that are not actually true. Right, which does help us 
it does sort of illustrate what people either believe or want to believe. Um, the, the Abner Double Day baseball story is, is, is perhaps the most prominent of those. It's amazing, that story. It's interesting, too, that these things continue to develop. Like your little joke, you know, your series of little jokes that yes. you open the program with. Well, watch out, because they may come back to haunt you. It's true. We may find somebody who will listen to that much of the show and go, hey, did you know about the left-handed regiment? And I, uh, I, uh, you know, right, you know, some people, you know, without getting into current events, there are people who have written a few bits about, you know, if, if World War II was being reported the way the Gulf War was being, is reported, you know, mm-hmm. supposedly. And so someone wrote... A, a, a bogus New York Times editorial for January 1860, 1864, I think, or 65, in which they, you know, it was like all this down stuff, you know, bogus editorial, which I saw cited in an online discussion about the Civil War. <laughs> and the funny thing is, it was online, of course, that if you looked at it, it was clearly labeled in the original place, you know, that this was bogus. But a lot of stuff like that happens, uh, uh, and of course, this fabrication uh, for for deliberate political reason. By, for example, some neo Confederates have been doing a lot of fabrication. Um, I just encountered an interesting. Uh, there's a picture that's been circulating that supposedly shows uh, is supposedly a photograph of the um, Louisiana Native Guards in Confederate service, mm-hmm. and it turns out that that is a uh, photoshopped picture um, of a, a Union regiment. Really? Yes. Um, it's quite interesting. Uh, uh, and, uh, and people do this for political reasons and, and uh, to get their ancestors off the hook for what they perceive as criminal activity and so on. Um, in fact, I, I, think, I think one of the tragedies of, uh, of the Civil War is that so many people in the South cannot understand, yes, their ancestors did fight for slavery, they may not have realized that that's what they were fighting for. Because they were fighting because someone said the Union, the North has invaded Virginia. Um, did the average American soldier in the Second World War understand that he was fighting fascism and genocide? Or was he fighting because we'd been attacked? And I would venture to say that an awful lot of guys... We're not particularly interested one way and the other in that we were fighting fascism. But they were interested very strongly in, you know, defending the United States. And yet, of course, they were fighting fascism. And, and in the process, they were fighting fascism, and they were fighting to end genocide, which no one, you know, certainly the average soldier never even knew was going on. That's a very interesting analogy, I think, and, and points out how southern soldiers could be fighting on, be, on behalf of a, a slave-based society, uh, whether consciously or not, and, and it points out that also that, that if people would accept that and not uh, attach blame one way or another, but just accept it as historical fact and, and move on, we would be better off. And then, of course, there's other issues involved. Uh, the post-war re- 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 reassertion of power by the pre-war ruling class, in effect, uh, developed a, a very effective socialization process in which even... Southerners, you know, in regions that were anti-Confederate, you know, the, the, the Hill people were, were were very strongly hostile to uh, uh, the Confederacy. Uh, was it the Confederate Recruiting Bureau had something like 60 dead? 
I mean, there were regiments that didn't have 60 dead. That's right. Um, got socialized into believing in the Civil War. And in some cases, their ancestors fought against the Confederacy or were, were, you know, prone to desert at the first opportunity. You know, desertion rates in, in the Confederate Army, very you can see the geographic patterns are quite interesting. And the Hill folks want to go home in many cases. And, and yet after the war, they, they, they joined the program. Well, Al, unfortunately, it looks like we're out of time today. Ah. But I have enjoyed this. It's very interesting and wide-ranging talk. Uh, it, it's like reading Knapsack, getting the, the different bits and pieces. Uh, I look forward to reading it again next month. I know our listeners do, too. Yes, I, uh, do, I do a similar column. Uh, in on strategy page, uh, which is a contemporary military history, mi- military commentary, but there's a, a subsection there called CIC. Is that online? Online, yes, just strategypage.com. Well, I will urge our listeners then take a look at strategypage.com when you're not reading North and South or the Civil War Book of Lists or any of Al Nofi's other numerous publications. And Al, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.